Our scripture reading this morning is found in the book of First Peter. We'll be reading chapter 5 in its entirety, verses 1 to 14. First Peter chapter 5, starting at verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who, still, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherd, shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Good morning. Uh, I need to preface uh, this morning's sermon by saying that immediately after the sermon, Silas and I will be jetting out of the church, uh, even before the closing song, because we were blessed with the gift of tickets to the matinee between the Canadians and Oilers (laughs) this afternoon. Uh, And so if you see me run out after the sermon and think, why is the pastor leaving so quickly? It's not because I'm upset. It's because Connor McDavid is waiting for us over at the Bell Center. So um, I'd very much like to pray, and then we will uh, once again open God's word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we are a people who were affected this past week with a tragedy in Quebec City that we are still trying to come to grips with, perhaps, and make some sort of sense out of. Uh, Lord God, uh, our prayer, especially this morning, is for all of those families who had this abrupt trauma, unexpected tragedy and disaster uh, come into their lives losing loved ones in the mosque. Uh, Father, we pray for you as the God of all comfort and healing to be very much present and on the scene, uh, perhaps through conversations that they will have with believers who live in Quebec City. Uh, Lord, there are any number of ways, uh, of course, that you can minister 
your healing presence. But we pray, Lord, in faith that that would happen. We pray as a church, Lord, that this tragedy also would open up perhaps gospel conversations in our own worlds, in our community. Uh, How can we, as the people of God, be a comfort and healing presence and minister the hope of the gospel in a very dark hour? Uh, Father, help us to have wisdom, we pray. And we pray also, Lord, for the perpetrator. We pray uh, that he, and we're just praying in childlike faith, Lord, that he would come to know you, Jesus. That you would do that, Lord. That in your pleasure you would draw him to your heart. And that there he would find mercy, we pray. Lord, bring your healing. And Lord, in this hour now when we open your word, we pray for attentiveness to the things that are in it. We pray that your spirit's work ultimately would be done, that I would definitely decrease as you increase. And Father, that this hour would bear fruit in our lives and in our church community for your glory and for your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to begin by thanking Harry for a job well done last week, Uh, even as his family was stricken by a pretty nasty flu bug. uh, God gave Harry the strength to come and bless us from the pulpit with what I thought was a very meaningful and challenging sermon on the tail end of 1 Peter chapter 4. So thank you, Harry, for an excellent job last Sunday. This morning we are finishing up 14 weeks, according to my calculations, that we have spent in 1 Peter. And the plan this morning is simply to venture through all of 1 Peter 5. But admittedly, I am going to give this morning attention to certain verses more than others. Not that every verse isn't important in the chapter, it's just that for the sake of time, this morning the major part of our focus will really be on the first nine verses or so of chapter 5. So let's open our Bibles and walk through chapter 5 together. What we notice here is that Peter now shifts his discussion about persecutors who are bringing suffering to the church. He shifts from that now to a closing section on matters related to the inside of the church community itself. So in other words, how the community of God, the church, internally is to behave and is to conduct itself. How we as believers are to live amongst one another in the church and as the church. And he starts here in chapter 5 by addressing elders in the church. Elders are people in positions of leadership in the church. And the term elder, as far as the New Testament is concerned, is really synonymous with or the same as the terms pastor and the term overseer. Elders get mentioned here in 1 Peter, and they're also mentioned in other New Testament books uh, like Luke and like Paul's letters and also in the book of James Peter says, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. Now we note here in passing, as we look at this this verse, that with some modesty, I think, Peter 
lowers himself to the same level as elders in the church. He calls himself a fellow elder. Now we know that Peter was an apostle, which technically put him on a higher plane than an elder. But here, Peter says, hey elders, I'm one of you. I'm drawing alongside you. I'm a partner with you in pastoral ministry. So there is some noteworthy grace and humility in Peter here. No doubt about it. I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Now we remember from last week, Peter has just finished a rather lengthy section of his letter, lengthy discussion on suffering. He's just completed that rather involved portion that exhorted us as believers to persevere through suffering. And now again, here at 5.1, Peter mentions being a witness to the sufferings of Jesus as he is addressing the elders in the church. Now this is interesting. Many have observed here that Peter is giving a sort of implicit message to the elders in churches that eldership in the church is really a call to suffering. Eldership is a call to suffering. As an elder on the front lines, suffering comes with the territory. The elder in a church can expect painful stuff and some hardship along the way. But the test is, what sort of example to the flock does an elder display as he is suffering? Now, according to Hebrews 13.7, leaders are being watched. The flock under the care of the leader... The flock is to consider, listen to what Hebrews 13.7 says, the flock is to consider the outcome of the leader's faith and imitate his faith. Whenever I read that verse, I say, gulp. (laughs) To be an elder is not something that a person should enter in upon lightly. It is a high and a massive calling that takes, I would say, sober prayer and reflection. Sober prayer and reflection prior to one's acceptance of the call. I want to encourage you this morning to always pray for your pastors. Always pray for the elders in the churches. Well, in verse 2, Peter tells the elders, be shepherds. That is, feed the sheep who are under your care. Ensure that the sheep aren't wandering. That's what a shepherd does. Protect the flock. Maintain unity in the flock. Work toward healing the sheep where there is woundedness amongst the flock. Be shepherds of whose flock? God's flock. Now notice that carefully. God's This is a great reminder here that the congregation is not the pastor's flock in the ultimate sense, but God's. The pastor elder 
is an under-shepherd who works under the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd owns the farm, as it were. Be shepherds of God's flock. And then Peter really nails down, I think, the how of shepherding ministry here. Watch this. He says, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must. Now that's important. In other words, a godly shepherd does not serve under a sort of forced compulsion. Well, there's nobody else that will do this work, so I guess that means I have to. Right? That's not the way it's supposed to be. Not because you must, he says, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money. Now, I'm here to tell you, you have the wrong motive if you want to serve in pastoral ministry and you're greedy for money. Not greedy for money, but eager, or we could say enthusiastic, zealously devoted to serve. Peter is concerned with the how of being a shepherd. Verse 3, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Now, sadly, and I think very unfortunately, tragically, many of us can probably cite examples of elder pastors who have acted like power mongers, who have ruled over their congregations with a sort of iron will, or by use of intimidation, or by just being plain despotic, dictatorial. My church will be a tremendous church. That I can tell you. Right? June dared me to do my trump this morning, so there it is. <laughs> it's not that way. God says here that being a dictator, elder pastor, or a tyrannical elder pastor, is decidedly not the way of the under-shepherd who serves under the great shepherd. The great shepherd said, after all, did he not, that his disciples and his followers are not to be, not to be, like the rulers of the Gentiles, he said, who lorded it over their subjects. Not to be that way. Jesus said, not so with you, disciple. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The way to shepherd under the great shepherd is by the humble service of others, toward others, not lording it over them. Verse 4 And when the chief shepherd appears, faithful elder, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now, verse 4 is a motivator, I think, a motivator for the elder to faithfully carry out his calling. An unfading crown of glory is promised to those 
faithful elder, shepherd, pastors who do not lord it over their people, who willingly, eagerly serve God and His people by feeding and caring for the the flock that is entrusted to them, whatever that crown of glory looks like, it will be an incredible blessing and honor, for sure. It's a beautiful verse. Verse 5 Peter now goes from addressing elders in the church, notice, to addressing young men. He says, young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. So, elders must submit to the chief shepherd, and now young men must submit to elders. This is all about mutual submission in the church. But now, who were these young men here in verse 5? In his excellent book entitled Elders in Congregational Life, Phil Newton suggests that the young men in 1 Peter 5.5 were probably those in the church who were mostly 30 years of age and younger. Newton says... These younger men were living under the fire of persecution, yet they had burning within them the passion to spread abroad the gospel. He says, they would likely have the tendency to launch launch into risky actions which could prove harmful to the whole church or detrimental to the work of the gospel. He says, the younger men needed Peter's sage counsel of submitting themselves to the elders and to continue walking with submissive hearts under the God-given authority of the elders. So the young men were to submit to those who were older. And then Peter broadens the focus, as he says now, all of you. All right, so now it's young men, elders, lay people in the church, all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward another, one another. And why? For what reason should each of us drape ourselves in humility? Because, says Peter, quoting Proverbs 3.34, God opposes the proud. <laughs> That's a good reason to clothe yourself in humility. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to to the humble. Notice this. The reason that we all need to get clothed in humility is because God, who made Saturn, who made the Atlantic Ocean and quarks, the one who right now is granting your consciousness, God, this great God, a Poses the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's the primary reason, according to this text, that we should clothe ourselves in humility. And Peter has talked an awful lot in this letter about the fear of the Lord, having a proper, healthy reverence for this awesome God whom we sit under. The humble person, as far as Scripture describes him or her, the humble person is the person who recognizes, listen, who recognizes his or her actual true position as a sinner before a holy, almighty God and who serves this God and serves others. 
The humble person in Scripture is the person who fears God, who walks circumspectly before God. And on the other hand, the prideful person is the person who is arrogant, who is haughty, who refuses to recognize his or her dependence on God. In our passage, Peter calls each and every one of us to clothe ourselves in humility. Well, how do we do that? Probably a primary way that one can become a person who is characterized by humility is this. And I'm very serious here. To meditate day and night on the cross of Jesus Christ. If you want to decimate pride in your life, if you want to increase in humility, the primary way that you do that is to go regularly, prayerfully, meditatively, soberly to the cross. The great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote the following. He said this, There is only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust. And that is to look at the Son of God and especially contemplate the cross. John Stott would agree with that sentiment. Stott wrote this, Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Stott says, nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. And then he says this, all of us have inflated views of ourselves especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. You want to become humble, clothe yourself in humility? That's the first thing to do, is go regularly, prayerfully, meditatively, and honestly to the cross of Jesus Christ. Peter says in verse 5, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, humble yourselves, there it is again, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Notice that, humble yourselves. And then verse 7, now verse 7 has been a verse in the Bible that personally I have come back to many times in my Christian life. Peter writes, let's look at this together. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. <laughs> now notice carefully, friends, the context that this verse sits in. Oftentimes we rip verses out of the context and just quote them on their own without the surrounding context. Notice the context. In verse 6, Peter says, Humble yourselves. 
lives, right? That command in verse 6 is the main command in the verse, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. And then the very first word of verse 7 in the original Greek is actually a participle. Remember English grammar? Casting. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So that there is a real connection between verse 6 and verse 7 here. The connection between what Peter said in verse 6 and what he says in verse 7 is simply this. We are to humble ourselves by casting our anxiety on God. By casting. Now, we said a moment ago that gazing at the cross puts us on the path toward humility. Here in verse 7, the path to humility involves casting or throwing our worries on God. Now, it's not every day that the greatest being who exists says to you, hey, throw stuff at me. But that's exactly what he says here. It's exactly what we have. Now let's, let's, just, let's just pause to think through this together because this is so important here. We've tried to point out already that there is a connection. There's a connection here in these verses between humbling ourselves and throwing our anxieties on God. The way we humble ourselves is to throw our anxiety on God. Now, I think what this may be telling us when we stop to ponder it is that to remain in a place where we are clouded over with anxieties and worries is actually a form of pride. To not cast our anxieties and our worry on God to remain there all sort of cocooned up, stewing away like a worrywart, is actually a form of pride. And I'm speaking here as a guy who has his share of real anxiety and worry. Why is worry or anxiety a form of pride? Some of you may be asking. Well, when I'm really anxious... When I'm really worried about something, talk to my wife, she'll tell you that probably it's most days. It's been that way since I was a kid, really. Oftentimes, my default tendency is to try to solve the issue, tackle the issue, the problem, the problems, whatever they are, on my own. My tendency is to look no further than myself. To fix my anxiety. It's so easy for me to believe that it's my strength, it's my resolve, my whatever that will alone bring me to peace or to a solution. What am I doing in that case? In that case, I am not depending on, I am not leaning on the sovereign strength and goodness and care of Almighty God. I am not releasing my stuff to the care of God. Instead, I am trusting self. 
I am relying on self to ease my anxiety or cure it when God says to me right here in his word, no, Dunbar, I command you, and we can take this as a command, I command you to throw the mud of your anxiety on me because I care for you. Don't be prideful. Trusting in the little God of self to handle it. Humble yourself by casting your anxiety on me. Trust me, God says. I love what John Piper says here. God will gladly receive. God gives all the time, right? All the time. God will gladly receive anything from us, our anxieties, that shows our dependence, yes, and His all-sufficiency. Amen? I want to read that again. God will gladly receive anything from us, our anxieties, that shows our dependence and His all-sufficiency. I love what Randy Alcorn says about what worry is. What's worry? Alcorn says, worry is momentary atheism. Ouch, ouch. Worry is momentary atheism crying out for correction by trust in a good and sovereign God. Once more, worry is momentary atheism crying out for correction by trust in a good and sovereign God. God. Do you know your God is good? That He cares for you so much that He wants you to throw stuff at Him? Back to John Piper who says to us worry work types. He says when anxiety comes, what you do is you use your windshield wipers. Your windshield wipers? Piper says this, 1 Peter 5.7 does not say you will never feel any anxieties. It doesn't say that. It says instead, when you have them, cast them on God. He says, when the mud splatters on your windshield and you temporarily lose sight of the road and start to swerve in anxiety, turn on your wipers and squirt your windshield washer. The windshield wipers are what? He says the promises of God that clear away the mud of unbelief and the windshield washer fluid is the help of the Holy Spirit. Without the softening work of the Spirit, the wipers of the Word just scrape over the blinding clumps of unbelief. Both are necessary, says Piper, the Spirit and the Word. Spirit and the Word, always together. Spirit and the Word. We read the promises of God and we pray for the help of the Holy Spirit of God. Cast your anxieties on the God. I hope you'll do this this week. Cast your anxieties on the God who cares for you. Use the windshield wipers that are available to you, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Trust God not self. Verse 8. More of Peter's instructions to us who are God's community. He says, 
Be self-controlled and alert. That is, be sober-minded. Don't be drunk in your thinking. (laughs) Be sober-minded and watchful. Why, Peter? Because, he says, listen, your enemy, the devil... Aren't we an advanced society? We don't believe in the devil anymore. The authoritative word of God says to us, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, of course, in the context of 1 Peter, this sentence most likely refers to the suffering and the persecution of believers. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Tom Schreiner has argued in his commentary on 1 Peter that the roaring of the lion here refers to how the devil tries to use the suffering and persecution of believers to frighten believers into turning away from the faith. Schreiner says this, Persecution is the roar. Persecution is the roar by which the devil tries to intimidate believers in the hope that they will capitulate at the prospect of suffering. Now notice that the devil here is compared to what? To a lion, right? The original readers of this letter, 1 Peter, had witnessed lions in the Roman amphitheater Tearing people apart. Blood dripping off of their jowls. The original readers of 1 Peter were also, many of them, familiar with the Psalms, where in several places the enemies of the saints are described as lions. Places like Psalm 7-2, Psalm 10-9, etc. Satan or the devil, is described to us here as a prowling, roaring lion. We know as believers that Satan is, listen, a mortally wounded lion. Yes? The cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ has dealt a wound unto death on the head of the serpent lion, Satan. And, friends, we need to understand that a wounded, defeated lion can often be more vicious as he tries to protect himself. Revelation 12.12 says that this lion devil knows that his time is short. It's right there in the Word. He knows that his time is short. He is wounded. He is soon to be destroyed. And so he is going to fight all the harder in his final days. We need to understand that very well as believers. Right now, I know as a preacher that even as I preach, his tentacles are creeping around this sanctuary trying to draw people away from the Word of God and from Jesus Christ. I know that. We also need to understand, however, that this wounded lion Satan is a tethered 
lion. Are you with me? He is a tethered lion. God has the devil on a leash. God will not permit this lion to tempt us, for example, beyond what we can endure, according to 1 Corinthians 10. And so while we need to be very alert and sober-minded with regard to this vicious, wounded lion, we also have the assurance from the Word of God that God is sovereign as the lion tamer. Turn to your friend and say, God is sovereign as the lion tamer. Do it right now. I believe in participatory preaching. (laughs) God has Satan on a leash. And God's timer, sovereign timer, is ticking with regard to Satan. Let's go to verse 9. Peter says, notice what he says. He says to you and me, resist him. Right? Resist the devil. Now this is not a passive sort of thing. Right? Resistance involves action on our part. Yes, we trust God for victory, but we also act. David trusted God for complete victory over Goliath. But David also acted. He went and picked up not just one stone, but five. David's habit was to pray before battle... And he gained assurance, blessed assurance from heaven. But David also acted on the ground with a sword. Peter says, resist him, standing firm in the faith. Now, what's the idea here? The idea is not, you need to note this well, the idea is not have more faith. (laughs) That's not the idea. It's not have more faith in order to successfully combat and resist the devil. This isn't about improving your attitude to be successful against Satan's attacks. No, the idea here is rather draw strength to resist the devil from what you believe already about the captain, Jesus. It's the content of your faith, you see, the truth of your faith that is the thing in battle. Stand firm in the faith. Believer, you are already equipped with the armor that God gives the shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy, the sword of God, the Bible, your offensive weapon against Satan, the helmet of salvation. And by the way, just as a side note, the armor and the weaponry that is enumerated there in Ephesians 6, it's the armor that God himself wears in Isaiah 59, 17. God loans out his personal armor to you, believer, by grace to enable you to overcome the wounded, tethered lion. Resist the wounded lion, firm in the faith, says Peter, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. In other words, when we suffer as Christians, we are definitely not alone. Other brothers and sisters scattered across the globe as they are, are experiencing right now similar kinds of suffering. And that fact of our broader unity with believers globally, I think, can be a great comfort to us in times of distress and suffering. 
Well, Peter effectively closes the body of his letter in verses 10 and 11. He says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will do four glorious and great things for you. Believer, God will himself restore you and make you strong, secondly, and make you firm, third, and steadfast, fourth. In other words, notice this, in every way, God will be on the scene for you strengthening you in the face of persecution, in the face of suffering. And in light of that truth, all Peter can do is worship now and voice this doxology that we have in verse 11. To Him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And then verses 12 through 14 are some final personal words. With the help of Silas... Peter regards him as a faithful brother. I regard him as my eldest son. (laughs) With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you, part of Peter's point in this letter, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. It's a summary of the whole letter. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, notice that phrase, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. It's interesting that Peter says, greetings are being sent to his readers from the church in Babylon. Now we know that at the time when Peter wrote this letter, the ancient city of Babylon lay in ruins. So most likely when Peter says that greetings are sent from Babylon here, it's not the literal city that he's referring to, but Rome instead. Babylon acts as a sort of code word here for Rome. Why does Peter use Babylon here? He uses it because Babylon had been the place of exile for the people of God. The church Peter is writing to are exiles and strangers, and so the use of Babylon at the end of the letter is to remind them one final time that they are exiles. So the letter opens with the talk of the church as exiles and strangers, and it closes in a similar fashion. Verse 14, finally. Greet one another with a Quebec kiss. <laughs> the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace to you. You may be suffering, you may be persecuted for your commitment to Christ. Peace What a fitting way to end the letter. Well, our hope is that this concentrated time that we have spent in 1 Peter will bear lasting fruit in our lives as individuals, in our congregation. Our hope is that the Spirit of God has spoken to each one of us in these weeks. That in His pleasure, He has perhaps nudged us or encouraged us or challenged us all for his glory and for our benefit. May each of us go into another week humbling ourselves before him, casting our anxieties on him, being watchful and alert to the schemes of the wounded lion, donning the armor of God as we trust in him to restore and to strengthen and to embolden us.
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for this small portion of your word, but so impactful and meaningful and profound and so contemporary, Lord, as we live in a culture that rejects the gospel. Holy Spirit, may you draw alongside us in coming hours and days and bring to our remembrance the things that we have ventured through and looked at in this letter. May you be glorified by our witness this week. And Father, strengthen us, restore us, give us courage as we face another week here in Montreal. In Jesus' name, amen.